On today's show, I'm delighted to have Christopher Murphy. Chris describes himself in his Twitter bio as a designer, writer and speaker, but anyone who knows him or his work knows that behind this succinct description is a vast wealth of knowledge. There really isn't a lot Christopher doesn't know about. He is a latter-day polymath and educator, sharing his wisdom and expertise generously with his many students and followers. I could go on, but I might be here some time, so I just want to say it's wonderful to welcome you to the Elastic Brand, Chris. My goodness, that is a really nice um, introduction. Um, I just generally try to keep busy, so I keep myself out of trouble, essentially. (laughs) Well, I think you might actually be the busiest person I know. Well, (laughs) I I have tried to cut down a bit, but the thing is I have so many ideas and I just want to get them all done as quickly as possible. Um, And quite a lot of the ideas I have, which tend to be focused around education or learning, are to me like really important, uh, really, really life changing type type things for other people. Um, yeah. So my kids are, at, you know, my son has just graduated, my daughter is at university and I, I'm focused a lot at the minute on education and the cost of education in the UK, which strikes me as very expensive. Yes. Um, well, I don't, I don't know about you, but when uh, you don't need to show your age, but when I went to, to Glasgow School of Art, it was free. Um, yeah, and I have certainly way. paid a vast amount of tax because I'm probably in a higher tax band than I may have been not going to university. Um, and I, you know, I benefited from that and that was free. And I, I think that the, the move to put up the cost of education is worrying. And I also think mm-hmm. working in a university, and I probably need to be careful what I say, um, I, I think that universities are becoming businesses and I think that that's a concern. I haven't got a problem with education being business-like um, because I'm very much into business. But I think that, the, the, that some of the drivers at the minute in UK higher education are about making as much money as possible yeah. and not necessarily about the quality of the learning experience, which I have a major concern over, obviously, as a father with a daughter at art school. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think it varies dramatically from university to university as well and degree to degree, I think. Um, my daughter's at Sussex and she has some really amazing lecturers there. Um, but I know that friends of hers who've been maybe at different unis haven't had the same experience at all. Yeah, I think that that's another issue. Um, you know, I mean, I work in a university um, at Belfast School of Art and there is supposed to be a um, an external examiner system. Well, there is an external examiner system um, because I am an external examiner and I, I work with Manchester Metropolitan University and check their degrees and other people come and check my degrees. And there, there is supposed to be a sense of consistency, but I don't think anyone can disagree with the fact that some universities seem to be very good and other mm. universities seem to be absolutely dreadful. Um, and yeah. that often depends upon the people who are doing the teaching. Some people are incredibly passionate and other people perhaps lack that passion. Um, and I think teaching is an incredibly, um, a lot of people think it's really easy, but it's actually very difficult. You've got to know a lot of stuff, but more importantly, you need to be able to communicate it with a lot of passion. Um, and there are many people who are teaching who are incredibly knowledgeable, but they're just dreadful communicators. Yeah, absolutely. I th- Yeah, I think some people maybe fall into teaching as a kind of easier option sometimes. And we were talking about this the other day saying that it, it's a shame because um, I grew up when I was at school, I had say an art teacher, my art teacher, Mrs. Foreman was a real character. She was one of those 
sort of people you'd find in a book you know she mm. was she did things differently she was inappropriate she you know <laughs> in a in a in a good way um she kind of really got us thinking outside the box and got us really into thinking about art and everything that um that entailed rather than just the you know prescription that they kind of have in a lot of schools around art and um she stayed with me forever and really inspired my love of art but I think like when people go into it as an easy kind of oh we've got lots of holidays and I don't really know what else to do so maybe I'll go into teaching because you get the summer off and stuff you kind of lose those people who go into it for a because it's their vocation and their characters and they love teaching um yeah I I I agree and tell me this was Mrs Foreman did she help you find a direction for your life did she did she point you in the right way completely she completely I went to an all-girls school and it was it was it was really still in the Victorian times um terrifying it was absolutely terrifying to be honest and um she was one of those people who um really developed each girl's Um, personality and found a way to get them and their own specific needs and their own interests um, into art so even if someone wasn't really into it she could find an angle that got them interested in it and she you know I struggled with the kind of rigidity of the school and from day one it it had no kind of um, uh, care around you know you just turned up you got the grades if you didn't get the grades you got out kind of thing um, but she she really picked up on that I struggled with that kind of thing and yeah completely tailored this love of art and probably I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now without her she was amazing yeah yeah I had the same my um, art teacher was called Mark Sheraton um, and he uh, it was actually I think it was maybe his last year that he taught me and then he set up his own private art school um, in Leith in Edinburgh and I mean he was like a mentor to me he you know, he was he was a devout Christian. He uh, he he very rarely swore, um, but one time he looked at me, and I was in my final year doing my A level, and he said, "Chris, Chris, what the fuck? When are you going to finish this stuff off?" And I thought, "Oh my goodness, if Mark is swearing at me, it must be quite bad." Um, and I, and I got my my stuff together and I got on with it. Um, and he. He came to me one day and he said, there's a show on in the Fruit Market Gallery in Edinburgh and I think you should go to it because I think that that's what you want to be. And I went down to that show and it was a it was an exhibition of Neville Brodie's work, um, who used to do the Face magazine. And yeah. I was absolutely blown away. And I just looked at it and thought, that's what I want to be. I want to be a graphic designer. Um, and that is how I ended up doing what I was doing. Um, and it, if it hadn't been for Mark, I wouldn't have been, do- we would not be talking. I would have done something completely yeah. different. And I came back out in my first year of Glasgow School of Art, came back and I helped him sand his floors and paint the walls. Mm-hmm. And Mark and Lottie, uh, his wife were, you know, they had really poured their heart and soul into this converted church. And I really helped them to to reconstruct it and to turn it into this kind of like, foundation course for people who wanted to go to art college and he was so driven by education that he had put everything on the line mortgaged his house and built this school and I never remember never forget one day I can't remember what year it was at Glasgow I come home from from at lunchtime I was watching the news and they said on the news um, that there was a car crash and Mark and Lottie Sheraton had died and I will never forget it I literally just like my world completely crumbled and yeah. I was devastated because 
Mark had really shown me the way and he was such an incredibly passionate and talented man and his wife as well Lottie was so they were so giving Um, and that really set me I think on a direction towards education I agree with what you say. I think a lot of people look at a university lecturer job and think this must be really easy. You get these long summer holidays um, and it's all just reading books uh, that, that nothing could be further from the truth. Um, and it's incredibly busy. And no matter how many times you say that, people still think that you're sitting around over the summer um, doing nothing. Yeah. Um, I've been Also, in- you hold the... You hold the future of these young people, you know, their their future in your hands, don't you? 100%. Um, and last year I, I went half time um, because I couldn't do full time anymore because I had so many other things I wanted to do and I didn't have enough time. Uh, so I, I went half time to, to be a half time senior lecturer and a half time make stuff person. And I nearly quit um completely but for the fact that when i get to the end of the year and we see the final year students and we see what they've created and we are heading them off and helping them to get jobs and really setting them down the pathway to the future uh it's so inspiring um and that's why i didn't quit because that feeling at the end of the year when you see three of our people are going to Dubai, some of them are going to San Francisco, it's incredibly exciting. And you feel like you had a small hand in some of that. Yes, absolutely. And you'll be someone that they remember in the future as well when they look back on why they went into specific types of work. And it's lovely to know that you've had an impact. I would hope so. Um, I'm sure some people probably look back on on their time with me with... um, happiness and some with less um I think my teaching stylists tell the truth and even if that might be a little bit harsh um because I genuinely believe that you know telling somebody something's great if it's not great is not doing them any favors um but yeah no I mean I think the results speak for themselves we have something like 24 students who graduated in May June and I think 17 of them have already got jobs wow it's incredible That is astonishing. Yeah, that is amazing. So you've kind of told us a little bit bit about what you're up to at the moment, but um, do you want to kind of share um, what you're working on and what your life entails at this present time? (laughs) Well, last year I had this this, uh, notion over the summer when I'm supposedly drinking tequila and just relaxing uh, (laughs) that what I could do is take all of my teaching materials from 15 years and turn them into what I call components Uh, which are kind of like micro slide decks where I kind of cover like one topic. Um, And I was, because I'd gone half time, I was doing quite a lot of consultancy and working with an awful lot of businesses and helping with strategy. And my problem was I was looking through really long slide decks that were maybe 200 slides uh, long for for a day long workshop and thinking, I know where I've got this thing I need to show you. And it's definitely in this deck. And then I would open up the deck Mm -hmm. and scroll through and it wouldn't be there. And then I would open another one and say, no, it's definitely in this deck. And no, it wouldn't be there either. Um, And so eventually I decided a much better approach would be to take every single deck and break it down into tiny fragments um, so that I could then build consulting workshop decks for clients uh, very quickly. So I would know this client needs X and this client needs Y, and then I can go and pull the components together. And I thought what would be interesting would be to take all of that and put it onto Noticed. Um, so I'm in the mm-hmm. process of sharing everything on Noticed just now. Um, so, yeah, I think you looked at one of the decks, which was about yeah. product storytelling. 
I've got a couple of them. I've got uh, product storytelling and um, I think um, the one for designers needing to write. I think, yeah, yeah, well, when yeah. things go wrong and let me tell you a story is the one that I've, I've looked at. Both yeah. absolutely brilliant. Love them. When things go wrong is in, in kind of ninja mode. So I need to make it public mode. Um, yeah. That is, is, is uh, well, it's about writing for clarity and helpfulness. And it's also um, the John Maida report, uh, Design in Tech from 2017, where he says writing is design's unicorn skill. I don't think it's actually John Maida who said that. I think it's somebody else um, who, who said that. It's, it's from the report and it's by Catherine Schwab. Um, yeah. and, and I thought that's it because I've been writing for a long time and I think writing is a design skill. Pretty much everything we work with in interfaces is, uh, is some, has some form of words. Um, and so the ability to write is, is important. And really that slide deck came from uh, an error code in an Adobe document uh, because, I'm, because I'm working on a book for Adobe um, on uh, called Building Beautiful UIs, which is about uh, mm. designing interfaces. I'm using XD a lot. And there was an error code that came up which said error code 3623. Um, <laughs> Very helpful. Yeah, and I looked at it and thought, this is a terrible <laughs> error code. And then I started, this is just the way I tend to work. I clicked on the link. I looked at the page with the support. Uh, and then I rewrote the uh, the error code message, uh, rewrote the dialogue, um, and then put it all online because I thought, well, you know, I've learned this lesson, so maybe other people could, yeah. could learn this lesson too. And then about two minutes later, I, I happened to put a double slash on the Squarespace domain. Uh, so I went to squarespace.com slash slash instead of one slash. And I there was a dreadful 404, which it has been fixed. Um, but I screenshotted everything. And then I kind of took that page and said, here's how I would redesign that page and just make it a little bit more helpful. Yeah. Um, and really doing that kind of thing has, has started to pull together this really big list of decks that... Uh, somebody can go through and learn something in, you know, five minutes by clicking through 20 or 30 slides instead of having to read a book um, because it just it's just quicker to consume the knowledge, I think. Yeah, it's really concise, really easy to get uh, to grips with, I think, from, from 100%. The, the deck that yeah. I've seen. Yeah, yeah. and then the, um, the paint a product story one or uh, what's that one called? That's called, yeah, paint a product Let picture. Yeah, well, there's another one called Let Me Tell Your Story, which is a full oh, workshop right. on product marketing. Oh, yes, the paint a product picture, yes. That's the um, product storytelling one. Yeah, I think. yeah. One as and well. I, I was bad. actually talking to Hyatt Denham yesterday about this one, uh, Bob Shankly at Hyatt, because uh, we were chatting about some stuff. Uh, they have a club called the No Wash Club, where if you don't wash your jeans, you get a, you get a badge. And Cara, my wife, was like, oh, my goodness, we have to wash these jeans. And I kept saying, no, no, you can't wash these jeans. I'm waiting for this badge. Um, and, and I contacted the No Wash Club about six years after. Uh, you know, I haven't worn these jeans for six years. I'm washed. I think I managed about six months uh, before Cara finally wrestled them out of my hand and put them in the washing machine. Uh, and I contacted uh, Hyatt about six years later. And this was about two or three days ago and said, look, do you still have that badge? Because, you know, I work hard for that badge. And then I got chatting to them and I showed them some of the stuff online. I was talking to Bob Shankly and said, you know, Hyatt is one of the case studies here that I'm using in this deck because it's about yeah. the often hidden details, like who made the product, how is the product made, what's it manufactured from, but more importantly, why was it made? 
um, mm. and provenance and, and all of the backstory. I think that in culture, from a brand perspective, I think we're getting a bit um, frustrated and bored with um, mass manufacture brands. Yeah, um, and, and I think the idea of going onto Amazon and buying something that's super cheap uh, because it's cheap, uh, there's, there is a bit of a backlash against that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Or if I think of it in relation to clothes like Hyatt's jeans, um, going to, um, I don't know, like Primark or uh, buying a pair of jeans that are this season and that you will only wear for one season and then you'll chuck them out and get another pair next year. I personally find that whole um, approach quite distasteful, especially when we are dealing with a climate crisis and uh, you know, there's landfill and there's huge amounts of waste. And I just think that an approach towards products that, that value the longer term is something that we all need to focus on, whether those are physical things like Hyatt's jeans or digital things like the brands that we make on, on the web or on mobile devices. Yeah. So can you can you expand on how product storytelling will would benefit anybody uh, you know any organization launching a, a brand or creating their own brand um how how they can do that um to benefit their product or yeah 100 percent. i don't know if you have show notes but if you do let's put a link into field notes yeah um, i do yeah because there's a mile marker edition of field notes um and i'm looking at the slide here which is a screenshot of the website and the, the text that came in the email, which uh, which is what prompted me to go to the Field Notes site, was like our 40-second seasonal release for spring is the mile marker edition, which celebrates the span of history and America's Dwight D. Eisenhower system of interstate and defense highways. And I was like, wow, that is fascinating. Um, so these are notebooks, but they're also a celebration of history. And then they're filled with stories. Now, if I was to go down to... Um, Muji and buy three notebooks. They probably would cost me. And Muji is expensive. It may well be no branded, but it is still expensive. Um, it may cost me two or three pounds. Um, if I was to go onto Amazon, I could probably get some super cheap notebooks for less than a quid. Three notebooks for less than a quid, I'm sure. Uh, or that's a pound. Sorry for the um, international listeners. Um, <laughs> but these three notebooks from uh, Field Notes, which are the standard Field Note size, are twelve dollars ninety-five. So they are not uh, the price of normal notebooks. They're much more expensive. Um, and if you're going to take a notebook, something as simple as a notebook, and sell it for three or four times the price of what is, quote, normal for a notebook, you really have to tell the story of the notebook. Um, yes. And one of the slides that I've shown, which is slide number 26 out of that deck, is the specifications that they talk about for the product, which is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. They talk about it it's proudly printed by the good people of this company and it's printed with West Rock Tango CC at 1S 12 point white with a thick brute force application of Pantone soy based Toyo inks. The, even the language as you read it's it wonderful. sounds absolutely yeah. amazing. Um, and what I was showing a client, um, because now I'm half time, I'm doing a lot of consultancy and working with companies on precisely this kind of thing, Yeah, was, you know, the, generally in the past, we would have said, look, try and keep the, the copy to an absolute minimum. Uh, 
But if you take a look at this page, the copy is the opposite. It's an absolute maximum. Yeah. There's a there's about 12 different bullet points identifying loads of different things about this notebook, including the fact that it was printed on a Heidelberg Speedmaster XL 105 40-inch six-color press. Um, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that really appeals to the nerd in an awful lot of yeah. people. Um, and it's really important that the specifications and the backstory are shared because that's what makes the uh, that's what makes the product not a product but a story. And when I was talking to Bob yesterday at Hyatt, um, I sent him uh, an email back with some thoughts and gave him a copy of my book Start um, and said, you know, when you're buying, what you're buying from Hyatt isn't a pair of jeans. What you're buying is a story. Um, and I think that is is the understanding that some companies sell stories and some companies sell products. Uh, yeah. That's the difference between a brand and a commodity. Absolutely. I love one particular part of that is where they've put with appreciation to Samuel Slocum, George W. McGill, William J. Brown, the founding fathers of the staple. Yeah, and I, I just love, love that bit. Yeah, because I it's underlined that in red yeah. because I just thought that was just great. Um, I mean, <laughs> they so clearly clever. enjoyed writing this. Yeah. Um, and you're obviously paying extra money for the incredible attention to detail that has gone into the printing um, but you know there are two ways you could tell this story and I find this a lot with people that I work with way number one is we print everything beautifully and way number two is you tell the actual story with all of the detail yeah. and I think if you're going to take your brand and you're going to take your product and you're, you're going to try and turn it into a brand and charge two or three times more for it because you've poured a lot of love into it um, you really have to go to town on telling that story and not you know mm. not cut yourself short um because that makes a big difference so often the copy is an afterthought isn't it and i it's quite hard i find it quite hard to educate clients on that that you know it's imperative that this copy you know it's 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 as important as everything else it's as important as your product um there's no point in creating 100%. a wonderful product and then it's it's just it's likely to fail if you don't get this copy right. Um, and it's one hundred percent. Yeah, we um, we start because now that I'm half time, I share a studio with uh, two of my graduates, Little Thunder, um, and there are four of us in there. Um, all four are my graduates. It's like I feel like I've taught all of Belfast, um, <laughs> and four four of us share a studio, and there's me. So there's five actually. Um, every project we start is with product messaging, is with product, is mm. brand storytelling. We start every project off like that. We we ask the client, you know, what's their goal, what's their mission, what's their purpose, what why are they doing what they're doing, who mm. do they um, worship, who are the people that they really look up to. And we then use that as the basis of driving forward the design. So we never start a project with, uh, uh, without thinking about what's the story that we're telling. Um, and I think it must be it must be successful because people keep coming back to us and asking us for that brand workshop that we do at the start. Um, and we we don't, if people ask us, okay, uh, when they get the bill or they get the, the quotation, is there any way you could just remove that? We just say no. Um, yeah. Because we don't want to work with you if you don't want to do that because that that's not what, we are not making cheap websites. Uh, you just use Squarespace for that. We are We're making things that are stories that are really, really well considered. Do you, um, so in your brand workshop with the client, do you, you sit down with them, do you? You go, that's done on a face-to-face -face basis and you work through 
these set of questions? Yes, I, uh, what I do is I take a core slide deck, uh, which has some key questions, and I'll go and do some research on my own. I'll have pre-asked the clients some questions um, as to who, who would be competitors in their marketplace that they um, consider important or people that they look up to. And then I'll use that as the basis to go and do some co content, um, just some content analysis of other competitors. And then I'll use that to highlight some key phrases that jump out at me. And then I'll put together what I call as a brand dictionary, uh, which is a, a dictionary of words that sum up the brand. And then I'll go mm -hmm. to the workshop with them and we will run through some exercises. And by the end of the half day stroke day, depending on the scope of the project, we'll have a, a dictionary worked out and we'll have pinned down some phrases. But more importantly, we'll have pinned down a, tone, a voice and tone in the direction that we're going in. And that will then enable us to focus on the actual look and feel of the design. Uh, do you show them examples, say like Hyatt or Field Notes, yes. that are doing it really well and say yeah, you need yes, to? Yes, yes, yes. Um, so yeah, so in that deck, I've got uh, Field Notes, uh, which is notebooks, uh, Hyatt Denim, which is jeans, and Things, which is a to-do list, uh, mm -hmm. really nice to-do list app by Culture Code. Um, and I show, uh, currently I show those three examples. And most of the clients that I'm working with are, I mean, they're not idiots. They they can make the mental leap from a jeans company to whatever they're doing. Yes, um, so yeah. if I'm working with a technology company, for example, and I show them jeans, they're not sitting there saying, why are we looking at jeans? This they they understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, we're lucky in that the kinds of clients that we have at Little Thunder um, and at Mr. Murphy Limited are not idiots. So I think a lot of the listeners who uh, like listen to this show are, they maybe work with smaller clients who don't have an enormous budget. Um, is there a way that we can kind of do this kind of thing on a smaller scale? I know that um, sometimes um, some of the clients I've worked with, they just do not have the budget to be able to, you know, have a day's workshop and stuff. Can we still ask the relevant questions and kind of do this process without going so deep yeah there's an amazing oh my goodness i'm going to tweet it this afternoon and i will Brilliant. put it I'll, I'll send you the link so you can put it in the show notes um there is an amazing um gist on github by um now i can't remember who it is off the top of my head and i'm looking on my desktop and i can't find it but i will find it after we're finished and i'll I'll put it on to, I'll tweet it yeah. later. Um, it's a very good content outline um, by, it's not Nicole Fenton. Um, it's by somebody whose name ends in Coleslaw or their name doesn't end in Coleslaw, but their username has been added Coleslaw to okay. it. It's Nicole Slaw. So it's maybe Nicole Fenton um, and the okay. username's Nicole Slaw. Um, and it's a content guide type thing that you use as the bare minimum uh, to get people to, uh, think about their brand so there's some mad lips in there which are kind of sentences that say i believe insert word here that insert word here something insert word here um and they're exercises that you can get the client to do um and oh, yeah. i believe that nicole has open sourced that um and if she hasn't open sourced that then i'll take some of my principles and i will write them up i'm not stealing nicole's because i have a particular way of doing it and i'll open source mine um, because it's incredibly useful. And then you can take that, give it to the client and get them to fill a lot of work in in their own yeah. time. And then when you get them to give that back to you before you start the project, um, you at least have a sense of where they're going. 
Um, yeah. And that then saves you doing a half day or a full day workshop. Do you, that sounds absolutely brilliant. I, I can't wait to see that. Do you, um, do you always hire in copywriters to do the copy or, do, or get the client to hire in a copywriter or is this something you do in-house? No, 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 no. We never hire a copywriter. I am the copywriter. Okay. Um, you know, I, I take care of strategy. You are a very good writer though. So would you suggest that other designer, you know, designers who maybe aren't as confident at writing um, say to a client, hiring a copywriter or do you think that we all need to be learning this skill yeah just so two bits of advice there one um if you're not great at writing hire tell the client that you need to hire a writer um and the way i persuade people with that is i um is i is i do a show don't tell i get them to do something write something uh and then they struggle with that and then i say okay do you see how that's quite difficult um i think we should pay a professional um now clearly i wouldn't do that because i do my own writing Um, But use an example. um, And I'll come back to an example in one second. Um, And then the second thing I would advise is learn to write. You you know, I I tweeted yesterday, uh, Yaley had posted a deck called writing for designers or something. Mm. Um, And I I mean, I've written two books on the craft of words. Uh, because one one is about words at the service of the brand and one is about words at the service of user interface elements. So I'll give you links for those as well for the show notes. Um, And I'll give you a discount code for those two. Um, So there'll be less than the price of a coffee for two books. Um, And I think that learning to write is so important. It It adds a whole dimension to your studio's capability. If you demonstrate to the client that they cannot write themselves and then you say do you want us to take care of this for you uh, they immediately say okay yeah and we'll find the money um, and they understand it and then before you know it instead of you just charging for design and strategy and build etc you're now charging for writing as well um, when I started writing at the standard Easters a few years ago maybe 10 plus years ago I had never really written before I got an E in my A-level English um, uh, all I did was mar- was art with Mark Uh, The rest of the time I was totally lazy Um, and I just taught myself to write. I bought some Mm. books on on grammar, I bought some books on punctuation and I taught myself. Um, So definitely learn to write. If I could just return to the story of how you persuade people that they need to pay for something. Um, Many years ago, 10 plus years ago, my wife and her father and my mother-in-law were doing an exhibition called Silver Connections. They're all silversmiths and enamelers. Um, and, And I suggested they had the funding to create this really beautiful book. And I said, look, we need to get a David Pauly, a photographer involved. And they said, no, 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 we do our own photography. Uh, And I said, that's ridiculous. And they, to be fair, they have built a light tent and they did all their own product photography. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, well, you know, it's not bad, but it's also not what we're looking for for this book. And they were adamant that their photography was great. Um, And I said, uh, and I thought, crikey, how can I persuade them? So I went into the workshop and I grabbed a big sheet of silver um, because they're they're always working on big commissions. And I said, how much is this piece of silver? And they said, 5,000 pounds. And I grabbed some hammers and I said, we're taking this silver and we're taking these hammers and we're going to go to David Pauly's studio. He's a photographer. He's going to make us a ball. And they looked at me aghast and said, there's no way David could make a ball. That would be a waste of that £5,000. And I said, well, precisely, you're not a photographer. Let's get in a car and go down. And within 10 minutes of being in his studio, 
they were converted and they now get David to do all of their product photography and have done for 10 plus years. Yeah, that's an excellent illustration of why people need to hire in a professional. Absolutely. Get the client and say, okay, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to write a short product description of product X. Um, and what I'm looking for is a short paragraph, about three or four sentences. But what I also want is a tiny strap line, something very, very short. And then give them as an example, 1000 songs in your pocket, um, which was mm. the original iPod. Um, and say, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Um, and mm. maybe show them the video of Steve Jobs saying, well, there it is, 1000 songs in your pocket. Uh, and then give them that task. And I guarantee you that they will find it incredibly difficult. They might be able to write a paragraph that sounds a bit wooden, um, but they certainly won't be able to write 1000 songs in your pocket. Um, and that's the point at which you push and say, we, we could do this for you and, and yeah. it will have a massive impact. And then demonstrate the, the, demonstrate the impact of that in terms of the profit to them and the, the, the payback for them. Yeah, that's a really, really good bit of advice. I think it's interesting as well that you're happy to, I know you're a writer and you're a brilliant writer and I, I love writing and I've written for for odd magazine and stuff and I, I it's one of the, probably one of my most favourite pastimes. But I I think in today we're, we're encouraged to say we're a specialist in something, aren't we? We're, I'm, I'm a brand designer or I'm a digital brand designer or I'm, I'm a copywriter or something. And do you think it, as a designer, it's okay to say, yeah, I do copywriting as well. Yeah, I can do that as well. Um, because I, I always feel like everyone's encouraged to just hire that specialist in for that, hire that specialist in for that. And your photography example obviously demonstrates that that's, that's a good thing to do in some circumstances. But... 100%. There are certain people yeah. who are really good at certain things. I would never say I'm a photographer. Um, uh, so, you know, that, that I think that there's knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good yeah. at. Um, but I read a really if you good know article. you're good at something. Yes, yes. I, I read a really good article recently. I can't remember who it was by, where they said they were talking about the ability to do UX and UI. Um, yeah. And someone was saying it was like usually these Twitter conversations where people start to get aggravated and har start to harass each other and not see each other's point of view because Twitter is such a dreadful medium for communication mm. um, and full of Nazis as well. Um, but uh, they were saying, look, this is not possible. You can either be good at UX or you can be good at UI. Mm. And the person who was telling the story said, look, if I was good at UX and I was re and you could acknowledge that I was very good at UX. But in the evenings, I decided I was going to learn to play the ukulele. And I spent most evenings learning the ukulele. And then within a, a year, I was really good at UX and really good at the ukulele. You would not think that there was anything wrong with me saying that I'm great at UX and great at ukulele playing. So, mm. you know, you could, by the same token, you could be good at UI as well. Um, I think the trick is to know what you're good at and to know when you need the help of other people. Yeah. Well, that yeah. is a lesson that can take you a long time to learn. I This year, I'm going to be 50. And this year is the first year where I actually feel like I've actually understood that. You know, the uh, 
that, that I'm working at the minute on the notice decks. Obviously, I, I've, I've talked about that. I'm working on the book for Adobe. Um, I needed a website for it for the Adobe book so that I could write it and share it while I was while I was working on it. And I went to one of my um, second year students who's now on a placement with us at Little Thunder, uh, Dan Gold, who is incredibly mm. talented. Um, mm. And I, I messaged him and said, Dan, um, I, you know, I wouldn't normally message a student, um, but he's in our studio. So the, the relationship's a bit different. I messaged him mm. and said, um, I need a website for this project and I do not have the time to do it. And I also don't even really have the time to art direct it or tell you what it needs to look like, Mm -hmm. you know, but I have a conference call tomorrow with Adobe. um, And this was like Thursday morning or something. And my conference call was on the Friday at five. um, And I sort of said to him that this is a really tight turnaround. And he said, yeah, I'll give it a look. And within the next morning, I had an amazing website with amazing, yeah, with with drop down <laughs> navigation and a homepage, and oh my yeah. word, it was absolutely incredible. Um, yeah. And we were chatting about the website yesterday, and he said, you know, what do you think? Should I do this or should I do that? And and my parting words were, this is your design, not mine. Um, you know, you need to own it, and you need to do what makes you happy. So if you want to make something fade in, or you want to change a corner radius, you do that because this is not my project. My project is the content. Your project is the design. And it was incredibly liberating for me to think, I don't need to art direct every mm-hmm. single thing. I can just let him get on with it. Or I can talk to Tim or Gabe in the studio and say, this is what I want to do. I wanted to build this thing called Design Track. It's a web-based school uh, that teaches UX and UI and design. And I, I'll make the content. You make the design. Get on with it. Yeah. It's taken me 49 years to learn that skill. <laughs> yeah, it is, he has done a wonderful job as well. He, he's <laughs> Dan, an incredibly Dan talented uh, student. But more importantly than that, I think it's worth stressing too. He is a really nice guy. Um, yeah. You know, he, he if you say something, you know, we got some feedback from the website and one of the um, Adobe content people said, yeah, we can't use that. And uh, he he immediately assumed that that was because there was something wrong with the design. Um, yeah. And that wasn't what it was. It was to do with the brand messaging. It was to do with the, maybe we should try and stay on message. And I'm a rule breaker. I just thought, sod this, let's just get this up as quick as possible. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, he was great. He is courteous. He's polite. He's enthusiastic. You know, he if something needs fixed, he will say, I'll do that tonight. Don't worry. And I, and I often these days say, look, don't do this at night. Do it during the day. Um, yeah. But he'll get back to me and say, look, I, you know, it's in, in San Francisco, it's whatever time. So I'll get this fixed now and then you can let her know sort of thing. He's yeah. just such a nice guy and super talented Amazing. too. So I think what's interesting is that, you you know, being incredibly talented as a designer is important. But and you can learn that. Um, but also being a good human is important too. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we've we've talked about product storytelling um, for brands. Yeah. Um, and how that sort of that getting that overall message right at the beginning is imperative. But something else that you talk about is content marketing, mm. um, which is more ongoing, isn't it? It's a kind of ongoing process and. Basically, we all should be doing it, really, shouldn't we? For our as designers, but also, you know, products for products and and as brands as well. One hundred percent. 
100%. Yeah. I'm doing work at the minute consulting with uh, Ignite, which is an accelerator and pre-accelerator uh, in Belfast in the Ormo Baths. And it was so awesome last week to see that Wired Magazine were doing a roundup of the top 10 places to work in the UK that are not WeWork. WeWork, I think, is amazing. Yeah. WeWork is incredible. But um, it was nice to see 10 places that are not WeWork. And yeah. um, on the list was Ormo Baths in Belfast, which I was so chuffed about because the Ignite team are there. That's Chris McClound, um, Kate Nutt, and Ian, um, Ian, whose surname I cannot remember. He's the entrepreneur in residence. Um, and Tristan, who is running the whole program, the Ignite program, he's such a nice guy. Uh, and all of them are amazing. And I did some work with them last year. Uh, quite late in the program, actually. Um, and I was so enthusiastic trying to help those people because they were founders, tech founders, all ages, yeah. all, very, quite diverse, lots of different people from different backgrounds, um, but all making something tech related. And I just wanted to help them get their ideas off the ground because I've built loads of businesses and I've learned some lessons about what works and what doesn't. Um, and the final workshop I did, and I only realized that this was their last week of teaching because um, I was saying we should do this next and Kate was sitting at the back and kind of giving me these non-verbal messages that were like don't say we'll do anything next because uh, <laughs> it, the program actually finishes on Friday um, but we ran through a content marketing workshop where I introduced content marketing and telling your story through channels like I don't know your blog or Twitter or Instagram or whatever I think a big problem uh, that we have as creative people is we think well we're so busy doing the work um, yeah. that we forget to tell the story and we forget to tell the story of the work we are doing. And then when it comes to the period at which we have no work um, because all of our clients' have, projects have finished and now we're looking for new stuff, um, and then we're thinking, God, can you, can, could somebody please give me some work? Um, yeah. And that, at that point, it's too late to be telling your story because at that point you're pretty desperate. Um, so we I have, think it's hard to... I'm, yeah, you go, you go. No, I was just going to say, I mean, that's exactly the situation I found my, I'm just writing an article actually at the moment for Smashing Mag about um, that exact situation that I found myself in, which was busy, 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 busy with work. Then a project got postponed and then two projects or three projects finished. And I was like, ah, oh, uh, I've got no work. Um, oh, I better, I better write some stuff, you know. And But then you have that added pressure at that point as well of being shit I need to get some work in and the it's not uh enjoyable it's more like god I've got to write this I've got to you know what can I get the message or is a lot of pressure then to kind of sell yeah. yourself quickly absolutely um, it's so, far yeah, easier I'm, to yeah that's something far, I've experienced yeah personally it's far easier to get work and to get good work when you already have work there's nothing like yeah. going into a meeting and I've really noticed this in the last year while I've been half time, officially half time and able to go out and actually sell myself without trying to do it under the radar. Um, yeah. There's nothing more liberating than going into a meeting with a potential client and saying, this is how much it's going to cost. And you feel very confident in your pricing because you're already pretty busy anyway. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that anyone communicates arrogance as in a kind of, we'll take it or leave it. Um, yeah. But I think that even without projecting that, there is a sense of confidence when you go into a meeting and say, this is what we want to do. And this is why we think it's really important. And this is what it's going to cost. And you will always have clients who will say, well, £3,000, mm, goodness, I think we could probably do this for 1500 if you got rid of mm -hmm. this, 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 and this. Um, 
I think that when you have work, it's much easier to say, well, if that's what you want to do, we would suggest that you find a different agency because yeah. that's not what we do. Um, you know, you have the confidence to say that without thinking, God, I really need mm. this work. Um, and and I, I think you subconsciously give out an air of desperation when it's got to the, 100%, 100%, I need this. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I've been there. I think we've all been there where you go into a meeting and you're thinking, if I don't get this job, I am absolutely screwed. Um, yeah. You know, and I think it's really obvious when, when when you're meeting somebody, it kind of looks like if you don't get this job, you're screwed. Yeah. Um, so I think the key is to be telling the story at, my wife is a silversmith, Kara is a silversmith. Um, and so sometimes I go to to talks by people from craft sector. Um, and sometimes I do workshops with people in the craft sector as well. Mm. And there was a really interesting ceramicist who was telling the story of her work. And she said, two days a week, I do marketing. Three days yeah. a week, I do ceramics. And for a lot of the students who, uh, some of them were my master's students because I'd bent their arms and told them that they had to go. Um, and some of them were craft students in silversmithing and jewellery and ceramics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were looking at it thinking like, well, really? What I really want to do is make stuff for, you yeah. know, five days a week. Um, and I was I would run a, work, a lot of workshops on social media or content marketing with the, with the craft students. And there'd be quite a lot of people who are all different ages. And I'd say to like, let's say a lady who's 65 and she would say to me, I have no time for this content business. And I'd say, well, that's fine. Do you want to just make the pots like five days a week? And she would say, yes, I do. And I'd say, that's absolutely no problem at all. You just make the pots as long as you're happy. Um, And then I would ask her, do you want to sell the pots? And she would say, oh, yes, I definitely want to sell the pots. And I'd say, well, in that case, then you can't make the pots five days a week. You're going to have to do a bit of marketing. Um, And she would look at you as though you were asking her to do something very distasteful, um, you know, because perhaps making the pots was you know, her true soul, uh, uh, like a reflection of her inner meaning, whereas marketing wasn't. Uh, It was something that was grubby and a bit dirty. And I thought, well, look, just make it like a story. Just tell a story. Mm. You know, that's not grubby. I think that's the most effective. Those are the most effective kind of blogs and stuff where people are really sharing their their personal story behind 100% 100% what they're doing 100% on their week and what's happened yeah and, you know, 100% thing, yeah. I started using Twitter again after a f- couple of years off I mean I was still using Twitter over t- the two years but ha- not as much and I started yeah. using it on the 1st of J- July and got back to where I was before sharing a few bits and pieces far less than I was sharing sort of like a dozen links a week or a dozen mm. interesting things a week. And what I also changed this time around, instead of posting as much, I posted less. And the other thing I changed was instead of linking to everybody else's stuff, I started linking a bit more to my things. Mm. Uh, like here's a tutorial I wrote on NFC or here's what I learned trying to register a trademark or um, here is a struggle that I had with a mental health issue. And what I've noticed in the first month of July, looking at the stats and stuff, is that the things that are the most popular are not where you're saying, go look at this thing. They're, this, they're where you're saying, here's an issue I have, and I'm going to tell you mm-hmm. how I dealt with it. Um, yeah. And people actually really, I think, want people, they want to hear from other people who are brave enough to say, um, do you know what? I've been struggling with mental health issues for the last three or four years. And here's some of the things that worked for me. Or mm. I gave up alcohol on the 1st of January 2018. And the first month was incredibly difficult because my life revolved around partying all the time. Mm. And here are some of the tricks I used. And here's why I would never really probably ever drink again. 
Yeah. Very few people I want think... to say that because they are concerned that if they do, that clients will be like, oh my God, I couldn't work with this person. That's... But I was, yeah, that's what I was going to say. That kind of vulnerability. I've had... I've had people say, be vulnerable, don't be vulnerable, <laughs> you know, some people are like, absolutely, I remember years ago, probably five or six years ago, I wrote a piece about mental health struggles that I'd had, and I got a brilliant reception to it, people were so kind sharing it, like, yeah, I've been through the same thing, I kind of got to that point where I'm like, I'm over bullshit, I'm just going to put this out there kind of thing, 100%. and my sister, my sister saw it and went, what the hell were you thinking get that down now no one will ever work with you again and I was like oh my god I don't I don't know what to do now and I've had some people say no I'd never put anything personal out there like that if a client looks on it your your site then or on your twitter and you've put something about your mental health whatever then so I tend not to to do that so much now but then I think well actually do I want to work with clients that if they saw that would be like I don't want to work with her probably probably not actually so I I think it's really interesting and your thoughts are obviously be vulnerable yeah um there's just no way I would want to work with a (laughs) with a client like that um I mean obviously I want to say that I am reliable and I get stuff done yeah and 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 my website which I've now been working mrmurphy.com which I've now been working on for over a year and is a total mess and and if anyone is listening to this podcast I apologize to Tim and Gabe because they built it last year and I've still not got the content in um (laughs) and that is totally my summer project if there was one um and that that you know that website is covered in in uh, testimonials of people saying this guy's reliable he gets stuff done mm. i mean i don't let yeah. clients down but i've certainly had some mental health struggles and if somebody doesn't want to work with me because of that then then fair enough i, I don't want to work with them um and I, I mean i had a client last year who you know i mean th- i think we need to get this in perspective um you know i was working with a client last year and they were doing um human resources Um, hiring and firing essentially Um, and they were like a kind of recruitment agency and I was Mm. dealing with uh, a person at that company who runs it there's about 10 people work for the company and we'll call the person who runs it Jim that's not his name Um, and I was talking to Jim and I was doing a content marketing strategy for them and I was just I just got to a point where I just couldn't do it anymore I wasn't really feeling great it really wasn't making me feel great either because Mm. I was thinking this is not the most exciting work in the world and I don't know if I really want to do this with my life. And I contacted this guy and said, Jim, look, we have to have a chat. I've done a couple of months for you and uh, you can have all of that work for free. I, I don't even want to charge you for it. Um, mm. But I don't want to do this anymore because it's really not kind of motivating me and, and I'm finding it difficult. Mm. And I think that if I if I continue, which I can, um, I just don't think it will have the passion that you're looking for. And what I will do is I will find you somebody else who can do this um, because I just don't think it's me. Um, and he got and, and he got back to me and said, are you OK? And I said, honestly, I've had better years. Uh, this is it's just not a good time for me. Mm-hmm. And he got back to me straight away and said, are you OK? Do you want to talk to someone? Do you want to get a coffee? And I was like, what? Um, I met him for a coffee and he said, you know what? Back in the time I had this really big mental health struggle. And I was like, what? Uh, oh and uh, he said, look, if this is not floating your boat, don't do it. Um, you know, if you could re- recommend someone else, that'd be amazing. Um, and wow. great, you know um there you go that is not how I thought that story was going to end I thought that story was going to end with Jim being obnoxious no he was amazing he was just like you know yeah and he he said to me at the end look at you know if you want to 
Uh, if you ever want to do this in the future, let me know because we love you and what you do is great and you really get us, you know, because you understand our brand. And he'd asked me to do it because I did all the copywriting for his website. Um, and he said, you really get our brand and you think like a recruiter and, you know, you really understand what we do. And I said, well, that's kind of my job. I have to become like the person that I'm telling the story for. Um, and I said, I think it's unlikely that I will want to do this, to be honest with you, because it's just not really my thing yeah. um and you know i i was in touch with him two days ago after about three or four months and said look i've got this content marketing thing i've put it all up onto notice it's called let me tell you a story there's 145 slides there um you can go through it and if you want me to call over and spend an hour with you and run through it i'll i'll call over and I'm, i won't charge you i'll just run through it because i think you'd find it useful um and you know that's an hour of my time um that guy was super nice to me and I'm going to be super nice to him. I just, yeah, yeah. for some people, you don't want to put yourself out there. That's totally fine. For me, I'm. You, you, this is who I am. If you want to work with me, great. If you don't, I don't want to work yeah. with you either, you know? So, effect, so, so effective content marketing needs to be authentic is the, the root of of what we're, we're saying really, doesn't it? 100%. I think that, um, you know, return to Enron. Enron was, a, was an American energy commodities and services company based mm. in Houston, Texas. Um, and it was, it was a, founded in a 1985 merger. Um, and its values, I'm trying to find them on the web, um, because this company kind of like grew and grew and grew and it had this, uh, you know, this, the core values were communication. We have an obligation to communicate and uh, respect. We treat others as we would like to be treated and in mm-hmm. integrity. We work with customers and prospects openly, honestly, honestly and sincerely. Mm-hmm. And it turned out later on when uh, Enron collapsed in a massive financial scandal that none of this was true. Um, and that these were just kind of like these fake core values um and i think so, we see those a lot around the web as well don't we and and in companies i think people have these kind of core values that mean nothing yeah i mean i've i've worked in some places uh where they have posters on the wall that say you know today is the day that we will conquer the world and do mm. some blah 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 and i'm thinking this is just ridiculous um mm. you know you don't believe any of this i've also worked in some companies where they you know where somebody new has come on the team in the marketing um, well, I'll not say companies, I'll say organizations uh, where someone has new has come onto the team who's head of marketing and who's said, right, we need to do these values because I've been on a values exercise. Mm-hmm. And they try to retrofit some values um, and say that this is what we stand for. And and I, because I can't help myself, have got in touch with the person and said, look, this is all well and good, but we don't really reflect these values. So I think it would be better for us just not to do this um, because we either do it or we don't. Um, because mm-hmm. actually I think it will be more damaging if we tell people that we have these core values and it's pretty obvious that we don't um, because then it will look like we're covering stuff up um, yeah. and normally what happens they ignore you and they stick up these awful values posters and you walk around the place and you think this is ridiculous and mm-hmm. other people walk around the place and think that's not the place I'm working at that's that's a myth um, and what it does is it aggravates the employees 
so it's a tightrope. It can be quite makes you feel quite isolated as well. I think as an employee in places like that, where you think, well, I don't feel like that. Absolutely, that's not Absolutely. what I'm feeling at the moment. And there's also a disconnection, I think, between people who I who I would say are working at the coal face who are doing the everyday work, and people who are mm. in the C-suite who are you yeah. know uh, from on high saying this is the direction we're going and these are mm. our values. And those people who are in the C-suite, whether it's in a university or in a business or in a charity or whatever are being driven around in a chauffeur-driven car and are taking home a giant pension and mm. are being paid vast sums of money and every year their pay goes up. And then the people who are at the coalface whose pay has been frozen for 10 years and whose pension has been slashed and who certainly are not driven home in a chauffeur-driven car find it irritating when the C-suite people say, what we're all about is passion. And you're thinking, that's actually not true. Uh, What we're all about is funding your lavish lifestyle. And so that's why when the when the university scandal blew up about two years ago and people were having porn star martinis and they were traveling the world in business class and some people were trying first class. And uh, as somebody working in a university, I found it immoral. And I also found it um, deeply disrespectful of the people who are. And in some cases, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not well paid. I'm quite happy with what I get paid and I'm glad I'm half time and I do the rest of my work. Um, But there are some people in my organization who are out workers who have been contracted out to um, kind of service organizations uh, to come and do the cleaning or security or whatever. And they are not on great pay. And when someone's drinking a porn star martini that costs 15 pounds, I think it's disrespectful. Yeah. I think company culture is imperative to your brand and your brand values. 100%. Your company culture has to reflect 100%. what you're telling your your, yeah. your customers. And, and, and yeah, 100%. And don't get me wrong, for every person drinking a porn star martini, there is a, a CEO who really cares. Um, talking to Bob Shankly yesterday from Hyatt, he was so passionate um, and I thought that's really interesting. David Hyatt must communicate in such a, and David and Claire, sorry, must communicate in such a passionate way that this just bleeds through to all of their staff. He talked about ordering a pair of jeans when they first launched and waiting. I can't remember what it was. It was quite some time to get the jeans um, to the extent that David, I think, had emailed everyone and said, look, we're, this is taking an age to make these jeans and we'll give you back your money. Um, and he replied and said, uh, no, 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 it's fine. Um, and apparently nobody asked for their money back. They were just like, it's fine. Um, yeah. And he said, I was backing an idea, not a jeans manufacturer. Um, yeah. And so for every company that has a porn star martini, there is another company that calls its tailors grandmasters um, yeah. and that pays people well and that believes in a, in a living wage and that believes that people should be treated with respect, decency and courtesy. Yeah. So, yeah, well, some, it's interesting. Something I try and kind of, when I work with kind of startups, um, I work with a lot of female-led startups um, and I kind of try and get them to focus on um, what's going to happen if this really takes off. You know, if, if, if this becomes a... You, you suddenly have rapid growth and how you're going to maintain those company kind of values and the culture and also how you're going to maintain the, the product quality because I think we see this quite a lot we get startups with amazing products really good quality but that's unsustainable when they grow rapidly and often lead to you know them going out of business because the quality drops because of mass production or whatever so I'm always kind of try, trying to talk to my clients at the beginning and say you know 
how big do you need to get? Do you need to? I think that's a really, yeah, I think that's a really interesting conversation. Um, Two days ago, I uh, and Cara and I registered designtrack.org and uh, which is, which is, we're taking the the UX book that I'm working on for Smashing, uh, the UI book that I'm working on for Adobe. Um, I'm actually, if all goes according to plan, I'm working on another book for Adobe on content. Um, And we're taking all of that and we're putting it onto designtrack.org. Um, and then we'll take all of the notice stuff and we'll put that on designtrack.org as well. Uh, and the plan in a year or two, depending on how long this takes to build, is that we will build like an online uh, UX school um, and it will be kind of like General Assembly or Lambda school. Um, yeah. Now, the difference, and it is a really important difference between General Assembly and Lambda, etc., um, and I wrote about this the other the other night, actually. And I, I, I know I need to finish my website because I'm now starting to write blog posts on GIST. Um, so I'm <laughs> posting blog posts on, on GISTs, which is completely ridiculous. Um, so I, I totally need to get my shit together and start doing it. But I wrote this piece on disrupting education, uh, which maybe I will tweet Um where I was talking about um, the exciting time for hybrid learning approaches, studio education and remote education. So you can do stuff in a studio and you can do stuff remotely. I I think you really need both for this thing to work. Um, And then there are these schools like Lambda, General Assembly, Treehouse. I think what they're doing is fascinating. Um, But many of these, not necessarily those three, but many of these Silicon Valley companies that are, quote, uh, disrupting education, have a mindset that education is really easy to scale. And I don't think it is easy to scale. Um, Education is incredibly subjective, especially around design. Um, And, you know, I've been working as an educator for 15 years and a designer for 25 years. And sharing that knowledge with learners takes time. There are bits of the process that we can speed up and then streamline. But imparting the actual knowledge and deciding what knowledge that is not that easy to mechanize um, and high quality education isn't a one size fits all ed- uh, endeavor yeah. it requires they some it. yes it requires some kind of finesse you need to know the right knowledge for the learner at the right time and in the right context um, and that's very hard to to scale um, and mm-hmm. so the plan with design track is to take all of this stuff and to take well what I've been doing for 15 years mentoring people and supporting people and we haven't really got around to working out the business model yet, but we did have this really interesting conversation two nights ago where we agreed that um, I currently would mentor in Belfast School of Art approximately 50 to 60 students per year. Um, so some in second year and some in final year, maybe as many as 80 if I'm doing the first year as well. And yeah. we looked at this design track and we thought, that's it. We'll take 50 a year maximum. Yeah. And a friend who I was chatting to this about said, but, you know, how are you going to scale the business? And I said, I don't want to scale the business. I would rather have 50 people a year or 25 people a year. I I need to look at the numbers. Um, But I would rather cap it at this number and know that every single person was leaving with something incredible than scale it up and pay some mentors who are not great to yeah. to allow me to do a thousand people a year and lose that quality and yeah and that's exactly yeah that's kind of what I try and get across to my my client do you need you know 
do you need to do that? No, you, you're going to do a better job if you stay at this size. It sounds amazing, though. It sounds absolutely brilliant what you're going to do. One hundred percent. Not not the amazing bit, I think, the do you need <laughs> bit. Um, I, that's yeah. it. You know, if you look at one of the things that I found inspiring about Hyatt Denham, um, especially the journey after Howie's, was that Hyatt Denham strapliners do one thing well. Um, and I wrote about that in my book, Start, which we should just give a discount code for all your readers so they can get it all for free. Um, and I'll give you all the learning materials and everything. There's slide decks and <laughs> worksheets and all kinds of stuff. I'm going to close it down anyway because we're putting everything into Design Track um, and we're redoing all of the books and everything. So I'll give that away to your listeners. Um, oh, amazing. Thank you. So we... Um, I just took that strap line, one, do one thing well, and thought, well, that's what I should do. Yeah. Uh, what do I do well? Well, I do UX and UI, and I teach it. That's it, you know? Yeah. Um, I also yeah. I also obviously have run a business, and I work with businesses, and I do lots of consultancy, and, you know, there's an awful lot I've learned, but it generally centers around designing digital products and making them successful, and that's yeah. kind of it. And if I could build a design school uh, that was teaching students for less than they would pay in say the UK system, which could be up to 9,250 a year. I mean, my daughter will be leaving Glasgow School of Art with 60,000 pounds of debt. Oh yeah, I know. It is shocking. It. <laughs> um, yeah. And so we, you know, just, you go. My daughter wants to do a master's and go on forever. So I think I'm just gonna be, yeah, it's just gonna be, I dread to think what it'll be by the time she comes out. It's gonna yeah, be Yeah, and but... as a mum, there will come a point you're just gonna have to say, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to stop. <laughs> You know, because they're <laughs> yeah, just this, you're, there you're is no as, yeah, and <laughs> um, there is no magic money tree, as Theresa May used to say. But Boris Johnson yeah. appears to have found one. Um, oh, you know, good. so but this this yeah. sixty thousand pounds, I look at it and think this is bonkers. Um, I don't know what it's we not a would, great way to start no, life, no. is it? It's not a great way. Uh, to it's start a dreadful your life. way to start life, and I don't mm. also believe that learning UX needs to take three or four years. I think it requires a certain amount of time for sure. And I think it mm. also requires being in a room with some other learners. But I think that it could be done in a different way. I think that you could have uh, one week intensives and then you disappear back off to your corner of the world and you mm. uh, you do all your exercises and you follow the curriculum and you're supported via Zoom through tutorials, etc. And then you come back again in three months for another intensive and you have a crit and all of that kind of stuff. I think if you were to adopt a model like that, it, you wouldn't have to rent somewhere. Uh, you wouldn't have to pay for lots of equipment and you could run this very reasonably. And I think you could probably have maybe two cohorts that were running mm. staggered four months apart um, and that would allow maybe 50 to 60 people a year to learn but each of them would be in a class of let's say 25 maximum yeah. actually I like the number yeah. 24 because it's two dozen um, and I'm old-fashioned but imagine you're <laughs> in a class of 24 people you would know everybody's name yeah. uh, you would have met each other because you went to the intensive in the workshop thing and you would be in a Slack group, so you'd be able to help each other out. You would have an incredible learning experience, but you wouldn't leave with £60,000 of debt. No, which can only be a good thing. 100%. 100%. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I think that's a really great place to wrap it up. Um, Thank you so much. I could talk to you for hours, but unfortunately we've got time constraints and I will share everything that we've talked about in the the show notes as well. But um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank Thank you you as well for your time. And I will send you a bunch of stuff to add to the show notes. I mean, as I said before, I'm really trying to... I'm trying to give stuff away for free as much as possible. I think that the design track thing is different. I think that that has to perhaps pay yeah. my pay my salary. Of course. Um, yeah. And I'm questioning whether or not I want to. Uh, I just I, I'm questioning a lot in my life at the minute. But I think that this is something that I could run in parallel with being at Belfast School of Art. I'm not sure how that would work. Um, but um, what I'm certainly doing with with my students is giving them all the stuff for Adobe and smashing, and uh, that's really helping them. Um, but I want to give away as much as I can and I will send you a bunch of links uh, to share with people. Thank you, thank you so much oh, for your time. Thank you so much. Okay. Lovely to chat with you. Yeah, good stuff. I hope you enjoyed listening to Chris as much as I enjoyed chatting with him. That was our final episode in season two, but we'll be back before the end of the year with a new season of Amazing Guests. You can stay in touch on Twitter at ElasticBrandPod or I'm at Liz underscore E or you can fill out our contact form on our website, theelasticbrand.com. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.